Ephesians chapter 3, although I am not going to read the first 14 verses, these will be the verses that we're looking at. I will read the first three verses, and I want to teach about the elements of the Christian life explained. Elements of the Christian life explained, and maybe... We can help you see a few things that you've never paid attention to. Colossians 3, beginning with verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Now, of all of Paul's epistles that he took the time to write as a prisoner, this one certainly deals with Christ's deity and his role as a member of the Godhead in a very explicit way. And Paul wrote to these Colossian people because he was quite familiar with their testimony, their conversion. In fact, he says their faith is known throughout the region because of their deep love that they have for God. And in chapter 1, Paul's prayer for them is that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. But this is the book that tells us that all things exist because of Christ. That he was involved with creation, that he put so much of this together. But towards the end of chapter 2, as he has began to talk about what happens when a person becomes a Christian, he makes it very plain that we should not allow ourselves to be subject to a variety of different calendars that don't have anything to do with Christ. So in verse 16 of chapter 2, he says, Don't let anybody judge you in regard to what you eat or drink in respect of a holy day or a new moon or of the Sabbath days. Christians... Don't worship a day, we worship a person. And Jesus has become our Sabbath day rest. This is why we can do church on any day of the week and do not have a guilty conscience. Whereas there are some people that if they don't worship on a particular day, they feel like they have somehow displeased their God. But Paul makes it very plain, we shouldn't allow ourselves to be judged that way. And in verse 20 of chapter 2, he goes so far as to say, if you're dead with Christ, why are you subject to the rudiments or the elements of the world? He said, being dead with Christ from the elements of the world. Why are you living as though you're subject to these ordinances? If we're truly Christian, then our life changes with regard to how we handle and adapt in this world. So he goes on in chapter 3 to introduce us to what happens when a person truly is born again. Now we know when you come from sin unto righteousness, from darkness unto light, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, you are crucified with Christ. You die to the affections of this world. You reckon yourself to be dead. And according to Colossians 3 verse 1, you now then are risen with Christ. I mean, his resurrection has taken place in you. New desires, new attitudes have emerged in you, been born in you. You now have become a new creature in Christ. So your old man has been left behind. 
quite naturally, then he says, if you are raised from the dead in Christ, you should seek those things that are above. And you probably heard people say before that such and such was so heavenly minded that they were no earthly good. I've heard that statement several times, but I've never met a person like that. I've never met anybody so heavenly minded that they were of no earthly good. But I have met people that were so earthly minded they were no heavenly good because they, they were so consumed with the things going on, not above, but below in this world, that their life was really of no value to God. But if you're a Christian, then you should go out of your way to seek those things which are above, because that's where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now that we know he is the God, the son, and he's related to the father, He's been given a special place at the right hand of God. Our desires should match up with his desires. We can only say his will be done in the earth as it is in heaven if we are acquainted with his will. And the only way to get to know his will is by getting to know his word. The only way to understand God's wishes is to read his word. There's a wealth of wisdom in this. And Paul gives you the command as well as me, set your affection on things above. Now that's a radical change in a person's life. The average person is raised to set their affection on the things of this earth. But it's when you become a Christian, you have to go in a 180 degree different direction and begin to put your focus not on things down here, but things on the other side. And that's what Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy them rather than down here. The average person is raised to focus on themselves, raised to focus on this life, to focus on the things that are important in this world. Eternity is something that rarely comes into most people's view until they get older. But from the time we're young, we should learn that what is most important is how we can please our Heavenly Father and how we can walk in accordance with His Son. So here's what Paul says. Set your affection on things above. Now, what are affections? Sentiments? Feelings? In, in some degree, we can, we can talk about emotion. But he said, not on the things of the earth. And it's not that everything on earth is evil or wicked. We all know that when we go to the grocery store, bread doesn't cost any less for a Christian than it does for a sinner. We understand when we pump gas, you don't get a discount because you know the Lord Jesus Christ. However, we still should live our lives in such a way that wherever we are, we're exemplifying Christ's attitude and his life wherever we are in this world. The only way Jesus is able to manifest himself on this earth, he has to have you. I've told you that a hundred times. He, he cannot wear a pair of pants until he wears them in you. He can't put on a dress until he puts it on in you. But whenever he manifests himself through you, then other people are able to see that Christ is in control. Now, Paul says in verse three, you're dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Now, Paul never came to understand who he was or what God had called him to do until he became a Christian. So this past Tuesday night, when we were teaching about called by God out of Galatians, I, I told you that when Paul says it pleased God to separate me from my mother's womb 
and then talked about call me by his grace that Jesus would be revealed in me. I told you that it pleases God to bring babies out of mama's womb. That's the plan of God, because every child has a calling that is attached to that particular life. But a baby cannot experience or enjoy that life until they enter into this old world right here. And the Christian who has come from sin into the kingdom of God cannot come to enjoy the life that has been hidden from them until they become a Christian. It is once you were saved from sin that God opened your eyes to know what it is he's called you to do. You can go most of your life living your life for yourself, but one day realize that your life truly is hidden with God in Christ, and it's Christ that has to reveal to you what it is that he wants you to do. And I've seen people go through most of their life doing everything they wanted to do and never one time think about what God may have intended for them to do. So verse 3 speaks about us being dead, Verse 3 speaks about the hidden life. You ever notice when you plant flowers or you're working on your garden or something like that, you put the seed in the ground, and typically you do not have to stand over the garden every day and say, I command you to grow in Jesus' name. You don't have to do that. If the seed is good, then eventually the seed's going to open up, And whatever's in that seed, it's going to break forth and then it's going to start making its way through the soil and it's going to start going upward. And and just when it gets the bursts of light from that sun, you know what it's going to do? It's going to start reaching up towards that sun. And at the same time, that root structure is going to develop. The tendrils are going to go out in different directions. But the entire time that's taking place before that first sheaf sticks its head up above the soil, the hidden life was there. It was growing. And it's impossible for me to know how you are growing in God or how I'm growing in God. You can't see that. However, we can pay attention to how we live. How we live tells the story. And when God is doing something in your heart, the natural eye is unable to see it. But sometimes we can see it through a smile. Sometimes we can see it through a tear. Sometimes we can understand it through the travail that you're passing through. Scripture says in verse four, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then we shall also appear with him in glory. So now we learn something else that's important, that the life that we have in God is Christ. Now, here we learn Christ is our life. In Galatians, we learn Christ is our faith. And the life that I live now, I live by the faith of the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This tells me that one day Christ is going to appear. He's at the right hand of the father. But one day he is going to appear. And Paul tells us in his letter to the Thessalonians that one day the dead in Christ are going to rise. He tells us Jesus is going to come back from heaven, appear in the clouds. Those that are alive and remain are going to be caught up and united with him. They will forever be with the Lord. We call that the first resurrection. First Corinthians, we call it the rapture. But whatever we designate it as, it is still going to be this union. So we're going to be with him. We're going to have a relationship with him in eternity. But until that happens, he still wants to manifest himself through his church on planet Earth. And so here's how he's going to do it. Verse five, he says, mortify. That's an old English word for put to death. It's another way of saying kill it. 
take the life out of it. He says, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Now notice the contrast. We're talking about what's here on earth. Verse 1 is telling us to make sure that we pay attention to what's going on up in heaven. So here's what he said. This is what we're to put to death. Fornication. That is a physical relationship with people outside of the covenant of marriage or outside of the covenant with whom we have an agreement with. Uncleanness. That's fairly general or generic. You have to you have to look through scriptures to see what the Lord describes as unclean. Inordinate affection. Inordinate affections. Uh, unrestrained passions. See? Something something along that line. Uh, we're talking about feelings and sentiments that know no bounds. Just going in different directions. Then synonymously with that, evil concupiscence, the prefix on there, or I should say the middle part of the word, cupe, that's where we have in our English the word cupid, you know, the cute little baby that shows up at Valentine's with an arrow and wings and is and hitting people with arrows in their heart as people are trying to get chocolate, all that mythology, okay, that that that's where that word comes from. But but when we're talking about concupiscence, we're talking about knowledge of sexual activity. Now he describes it here as evil concupiscence. So there is knowledge of physical intercourse that is bad. There is information that is wrong. There's a wrong way to introduce this into our lives and certainly a wrong way to practice this. Then he says covetousness, one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. Because he said covetousness is idolatry. Now why is coveting wrong? Because typically you're wanting something that belongs to someone else. Somebody's wife, somebody's husband, somebody's, somebody's car, somebody's house. You can watch television on some of these uh, documentaries and you'll see people kill for the strangest reasons. Sometimes a parent will be jealous because somebody else's daughter is a better cheerleader than theirs. Covetousness. And the reason this is idolatry is because once you set your affection on something on this earth that's tangible and visible to you that you can, you can see, <clears throat> then pretty soon you begin to organize your life around that particular topic or thing. So it's going to govern your mind your energy, your resources, your money, your time, so on and so forth. And that thing becomes an idol because you can't break away from it. You desire it so bad. You want it so bad. Pretty soon your entire existence is focused on that particular, that particular thing. So here's what Paul says in, in verse five, the first, first sentence that put those things to death. See, they may be alive in you right now, he say, put them to death. Put them to death. Get get control of that. And then he says in verse six, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Now, I've heard a number of sermons from very prominent and very popular ministers who, who are good teachers. Don't misunderstand me. But they'll, they'll, they'll say something like this in the course of their marriage. And they just got a big crowd of people out there. And you know some of those folks are not even Christian. And they'll say something like this. Here's what you need to know. God's not mad at you. Oh, yes, he is. Oh, yes, he is. 
If, if you're not living for him and you're disobedient, he is very displeased. Now, I can I can liken that to something very simple, the, the parental and the child relationship. Parents typically are very pleased when their children do the things that they tell them to do. Yep. So if they say go in there, clean their room, then, of course, mom comes in there, dad comes in there, looks, and they're quite, quite, quite proud of that. But then if those kids are disobedient, I've, I've seen some, um, you know, I've seen some, some parents where, you know, you see flashes of rage in the eyes and, and, and uh, some lightning suddenly appearing from behind their head as wrath is manifesting itself. And you know, you hear people say, of course, if you're going to discipline a child, you have to always do it when you call. My mom never read that book. My dad never saw that video series. It doesn't work like that. But verse 6, it says, for which sake the wrath of God cometh. So verse 5 tells us, here are some of the reasons why the wrath of God is manifested. Now, we all know John 3.16. But we forget John 3.17, John 3.18, which tells us that he that doesn't believe is condemned already. And then we forget Romans chapter 1 that says the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. The wrath of God is not a problem for you and me. It's a problem for people who reject God and refuse to be obedient to God. I would never tell a person who denies God's existence or who lives in sin, oh, God's not mad at you. Oh, I'd be telling, I'd be quoting all kind of verses out of, out of Psalms. God's angry with the sinner every day. His bow is bent towards your destruction. His arrow is ready to fly mortally towards your heart. You're one heartbeat from eternity. You need to get right with God now. That's the, that's scripture. And that's not trying to put fear in anybody. That's just simply trying to not misrepresent the character of God. See, that's all. I want to misrepresent him. So verse seven, he says, in which you also walked past tense sometime when ye lived past tense again in them. So now we know we're dealing with people whose lives are supposed to be changed. See, Christians. So what is it that they once did and how did they once live? They lived in fornication. They lived in uncleanness and so on and so forth. My wife and I were visiting a couple one time in a small town, and I'll never forget this. This um, this lady was sitting at a table with us, and she kind of made the statement about some friends of hers who were in their 60s or something like that, maybe in their 70s, and, and they were wanting to get married, but but they were quite concerned that if they get married, then, of course, somebody's going to lose their Social Security. So that's going to be a loss of income. And so we're sitting there and I'm chewing my food and everything. And the lady says, well, I told them there's just no sense in them do that. It's just better just go ahead and live together and hold on to both sources of income. And I almost choked on my food because I thought, OK, here is is someone well into their latter years of life and my senior and and I began to think about what Job said when Job said I expected that when you grow old you would grow wise and he realized that just because people grow older they don't grow wiser scripture says in the past that you lived in fornication we would never tell anybody to live outside of the covenant of wedlock just to save a few dollars sin is sin whether you're rich or poor 
or somewhere in between. But Paul says in verse 7, that's how you folks used to be. But verse 8, but right now, he says also, put off all of these. Now, he describes these things like we're talking about clothing. Notice, he says, put off, get rid of, shun these things. Anger, wrath, malice. Now, all of us have been angry before, and I don't have a doubt you'll be angry again, possibly by the end of this week. That's if you don't get angry with me now as I'm teaching this. But we, we do need to know that when we're talking about anger, Mark 3, I believe it is, tells us that Jesus got angry with the religious people. Paul says in Ephesians, be angry and sin not. So it's possible to be mad without sinning. Just because you get upset about something, that is not to say you have entered into sin. But there is a threshold that can be crossed. I'm going to give you an illustration. You probably heard about this story this past week. Over in Arizona, there was a gentleman who, I guess, he and his daughter went into a store, and the daughter was in a stall in the restroom, and the gentleman came in behind her, tried to get into the stall where she was, wanted to sexually assault her or something like that. And so I don't know if she texted her dad or somehow got word to her dad that this was happening. And so the father made contact with the gentleman. So you know the father was steaming. He's hot. He's mad, angry. And he and the gentleman, not with any knives or guns or anything, got into fisticuffs. And the father beat the man. And then five days later, the gentleman died. So... The father ended up arrested. Now he's in jail, getting ready to be tried for murder. So I listened to that, and I thought to myself, even listening to the lawyers, I said, now this would be a case I would enjoy. To tr- I love trying, because you could say to every juror up there, which one of you would have did something different if somebody would have been trying to get into that restroom stall and attack your child or your daughter? And, and and when it comes to anger, the thing about it is it, it, it comes up so quickly. It's like a volcano. You see, the difference between anger and wrath is normally wrath. You're entering into the penalty stage with God. When God's wrath and fury is manifested, it's usually punishment time. That's why there's a difference between when 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 a parent says to a, a child, don't do that again. And gives them that look. You know, the Bible says God will guide you with his eye. You know, my parents said, now look, I, I, you just, I don't want you doing that again. And sometimes they don't even say anything. My mom and dad, I could be messing with some kids in another corner of the room. And then they look at me. And then with that, that countenance, just stare right on over there into that chair. And I knew exactly what that meant. Get your tail from that side of the room into that chair right now. See? So that's somebody getting angry. Wrath? would have been the occasions when she got up out of the chair and came over and helped me get into the chair. See, there's a difference. We, we have to understand this. Malice has to do with something with bad intent. We say someone's behavior is malicious. We say it's destructive. Somebody using slander, going out of their way to be angry towards you and undermine your influence, your authority, your position, your favor. That's a person who's operating in malice. Blasphemy, of course, would be language that is unacceptable to God because it is against God to blaspheme. The Lord said all manner of communication and speech will be forgiven to you except blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. 
Paul wouldn't say get rid of these things or put off these things if it wasn't within our ability. He even says filthy communication out of your mouth. And you have to you have to wonder sometimes what constitutes filthy. Some ladies in Red Cloud Church one time told me they were in a public place and some other ministers were at a table with some lay people from some other churches. And uh, and so this 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 gentleman comes up to these ones who were one of them being a member of my church and then a few other people. And, and, and this preacher tells a vulgar joke and afterwards expected everyone to laugh and so the my parishioner was telling me and I kind of said well how, how, how did you feel after that she just said I just thought to myself I know that you wouldn't have told a joke like that that's what she said I know you wouldn't have told a, told a joke like that Filthy communication coming out of the believer's mouth. Let's remember verse 7. In which you also walked sometime when you lived in them. But verse 8. Put off these things. And Paul is giving us an outline of how to handle this. We're dealing with filthy communication. So the Bible says don't take the name of the Lord in vain. So we're very careful how we use the name of God. How we use the name Jesus. And as a Christian... Be careful about your speech because people do pay attention to to how you talk and what you say. They do. Verse nine, he says, don't lie one to the other. Paul in another place says, provide things honest in the sight of all men. So we know that telling lies is uh, telling lies is not good, namely because if you tell too many, you can't remember the ones you told. Think about it. You tell one too many, you can't remember how many you've told, and then you'll have a hard time remembering who you told them to. Well, what what did I tell her? Didn't I tell her I was from Arkansas? What did I tell her I was from Georgia? See, that, that kind of a thing. The scripture says, don't lie, but it says, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. So he's saying there was a time in your life you did do these things, and all of this is still connected with that old life and with the old man. But he said, I'm saying to you now, do not do these things now. It's within our power to restrain ourselves. None of us in here are perfect. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not reading this. Uh, with the understanding that there will never in my life be a time again where I am not angry or where wrath is not exhibited. In fact, I know how flawed I am, so I pray these kind of prayers. Father, keep me out of situations that would lead me to kill somebody for messing with my wife. I pray that. Now somebody else will say, well, I, I couldn't pray something like that. You could if you grew up with the anger issues I had. I grew up in a divorced home. I, I grew up in a in an inner city where you you either brawled or you were bullied. I, I grew up in a, a situation where cussing was the norm. Where at the age of five and six, when I was buying gifts for my parents for Mother's Day and Father's Day, I was buying stuff that had foul language in it because I thought foul language was the norm. Believe me when I tell you, I come from a heathen background. So when I got saved, all of this hostility I had towards my natural father was still there. 
He'd make promises and say he'd come by and pick me up and take me here or take me there. And then he wouldn't show up. And then just through the years, that kind of thing, that just just kind of boiled up inside of me. And then I became a believer and came to know the Lord. And that stuff still was in there through that old man. And God had to show me through the work of the Holy Spirit how to put off some of this stuff and put these things to death. You, you need to be mature enough in your Christian walk to where people on your job or in your community that you have never really enjoyed that you can be in the room with them without the hair standing up on the back of your neck and without veins popping out in your forehead. I'm telling you. And you say, well, how do you do that? It's according to what Paul says here. Put off all of these things. Now, here in a little bit, we're going to tell you what to put on. But notice verse verse number 10. He said, now put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. This is how we do it now. When we become a Christian, we have to start changing our mind. Our mind has to be washed, as Paul says. Our thoughts have to be flushed. Now, you may be the kind of person that does not enjoy reading. I can promise you now, if you don't like to read and you refuse to read, you're going to be a baby Christian all your life. That's all that's going to happen. You have to discipline yourself to sit here and read through these passages and let Paul and Peter and Matthew and Samuel and all these different books really work on you and chisel you into the mold that God wants you to have. And as that takes place over time, we become stronger and mature. So he says, put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge. Well, verse 11 says that in that new man, there is neither Greek or Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. So in verse 11, he's saying in that new creature, when you become a believer in the Lord, in that new life, there's no racism. There's no prejudice. There, there is no, we, we have no big eyes and little U's and all of that kind of a thing. There's no way on this earth somebody should be born of God, be a new creature, and then look at somebody else who's of a different background and say, that person is worse than I am. Absolutely, absolutely wrong. And this is what Paul is saying. And and in Christ, it doesn't matter what <clears throat> color you are. I heard one, one man years ago when I was a, a preacher in the South as a teenager, and this man was trying to explain how uh, blacks ought to only marry blacks and whites should only marry whites and Hispanic people, only Hispanic people and so on and so forth. And then he he got all off into this stuff about how, you know, you know, dogs don't switch and have relationships with other kinds of animals and all these different kinds of things. And I'm sitting here listening to this older man who, in my mind, I'm thinking, you're a fool. And and he's saying all that, and, I, and I'm saying, okay, now, just on what you're saying on the basis of colors, you know how many different pigeons have relations with other pigeons that are different colors? You know how many different dogs have relationships with dogs that are different colors? They don't care anything about colors. And when a baby comes into this world, a baby has no concept of of, of a brown child being any different than a white child. They just know they want to play and laugh and be tickled and then eat and go to sleep and burp. That's it. Somebody has to introduce to them the differences and then that foul spirit of, of racism. But Paul said here in chapter 3, verse 11, in Christ, 
You don't have any of that. Well, you say, well, why do you have so many people who go to church or people who say they're Christian and yet they have held views similar to this because they have not renewed their minds? Okay, they have not renewed their minds. The other side of that is first John says, by this, we know we've passed from death to life. How we love the brethren. See, So the other aspect of that is some cases may prove, demonstrate, that some of them never came to know God in the first place. See, Something happens inside of a person when they become a Christian. There's a change. We're not talking about putting water on somebody. We're not talking about dunking somebody in the pool. We're not talking about just going to church. We're talking about a lifestyle change that occurs. Well, let me hasten. <clears throat> so in verse 12, he says, As the elect of God, as Christians now, Put on bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Now, wouldn't it have been easier for him to give us something that would have been simpler to do? I mean, everything that he mentions in verse 5 and verse 8, those things seem to be easy. Put that to death, take off this, but putting on this stuff seems to take a lot of discipline. I mean, really, do you have bowels of mercies? See, mercy is in the plural. I don't mean are you compassionate one time a day. I mean, can you can you be compassionate over and over again? Scripture says his mercies are new every morning. Can you be merciful every day? God's mercies are new every morning, even when every day presents evil and bad stuff. And God still lets the wicked wake up day after day. Do you have those kind of bowels of mercy that when you come in contact with people that don't like you or people that are lazy or people that are not interested in God? Can you still be merciful to that one walking down the road that needs a ride? Even if they cussed at you or called you a name recently bowels of mercy can you be kind kindness is something that we would all think would come naturally to christians but some of these things don't come natural to anybody because so much of that old man has ruled and reigned in our life when we become a christian we have to work harder now there's some people who get saved and they just have a naturally kind disposition really they really do and you probably have come across people like that, even folks who aren't even saved. You just met some people. They're just really nice. That's just how they are. And then they become a Christian. It seems like they, God gives them a double double scoop on their cone and they're, they're even nicer. Then I've seen other people who they, they become a Christian. And I know they've had a genuine experience with God, but it, it's a struggle for them. I had one man I had I, I buried and did the funeral. I stood up there in front of all his family. I wasn't even sure how many people would even come out because he, he was just cantankerous old man, you know, but I knew I knew he loved God. He just was he just had flesh issues. And so these all these people in the church and I got up and I said, I want to tell you folks something. I said, of all the people I've pastored all the years that I've been out here in Nebraska, I said this. Man, right here, laying in this casket, 
I said, he's been more of a trial to my faith than anybody else I've ever passed. That's what I said. And all of them in there looked at me and shook their head, and they knew exactly what I was talking about. Because there were times where he'd walk around later on, later in life, he ended up in a nursing home. He'd walk around a nursing home. He'd say, God bless you to everybody. He'd tell everybody, Pastor Daryl's my pastor. Revival Tabernacle's my church. He's shaking hand. And then, I mean, he had one of those moments where he just blow up on the employee and he's going off and screaming and using all kind of words that are terrible to use. And he's saying stuff and I'm getting phone call. Pastor Daryl, could you come over here and please calm so and so down? Then I'd go over there and do everything I could to try to calm him down. And I'd say, why do you do that and he started crying he said pastor i don't know why i do this see you got to be merciful folks merciful some of the things that come easy to you don't come easy to other people some of the attitudes that come easy to you do not come easy to other people humbleness of mind some people are arrogant some people are proud it is it is in them to a fault. And when they become a Christian, it's like a crucifixion for them to try to have to humble themselves and prefer people above themselves. But Paul says you can do it. Meekness, long suffering, putting up with people, patient with people. He says in verse 13, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. You know, forbearance isn't easy. You know, put up with other people's problems. The, the, the tendency works, works in us like this. We are much more patient and forbearing with the flaws of people related to us or people in our immediate family than we are with people who are disconnected. You, you will put up with things in your family members that you wouldn't put up with your neighbors. And then even amongst your family members, you'll put up with things uh, in your mom and dad and your children's life and siblings' lives that you wouldn't put up with in your cousins and other people. That's just the way we are. But in the family of God, the, the blood of Jesus is what has brought us together. And Paul says we have to be willing to forgive one another and not allow bitterness to become an unforgiving cup that we put to our lips over and over again. Unforgiveness is terrible. I've worked on that several times in the last month, and I've told you that unforgiveness is like like drinking poison over and over again. You drink the poison, then the person you're angry at, you expect them to die. I've got a grudge against you, so I can't wait for something bad to happen to you. And you sit there and you take all of that stuff in and you don't get any better at all. So Paul says, if anybody has a quarrel against any, forgive them as Christ forgave you. So let's never forget how Christ forgave you. and Let's never forget what Christ forgave in your life. I hadn't forgotten what he gave me. Huh? Bad little kid running around the streets of Cleveland, Ohio. Had older brothers in a gang. I got in the game doing bad stuff, terrible, terrible stuff. And when I look at some of the things the Lord uh, forgave me of, then it's it's very difficult when I'm dealing with somebody else's sin to be too judgmental. See, When I can sit back and remember sitting in them bus stations waiting to rob some old person See, as a kid, it's hard to be hard to be judgmental. 
And, and when you, when you think about the mercy that God has shown to me and the mercy that God has shown you, then you look back and you say, Oh my goodness, love really does cover a multitude of sins. Because I'd never know about your sins if you didn't tell me. And you'd never know about my past sins if I didn't tell you. And finally, Paul says, above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Thank the Lord for love. Oh, my praise God. You talk about forgiveness. Oh, if God changes a life, folks, he really does change it. I don't put myself as the measuring rod for anything, but I honestly believe knowing where I came from, what God did in my life. If he's going to change somebody, then that change has to be real. It has to be real. Let's pray. Father, how wonderful it is to know you. We have a lot of people that we know do not have a relationship with you, but we want to be good witnesses for you in this earth. Father, help us as we depart from this place, but never from your presence to be able to set our affections on things above. We want to be heavenly minded, but we want to be earthly of an earthly good. Help us to reach people, to minister to people, to love people, to embrace people, to hug people. But help us not to misrepresent your character here in this earth. These things, oh God, we pray for in Jesus' name. Amen, 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 amen.